It's like you come onto this planet with a crayon box. Now you may get the eight pack, you may get the 16 pack, but it's all in what you do with the crayons, the colors that you're given. And don't worry about drawing within the lines or coloring outside the lines. I say color outside the lines, you know what I mean? Color right off the page. Don't box me in. We're in motion to the ocean. We are not landlocked, I'll tell you that. So where do you want out? So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark for movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we're dabbling in existentialism for the second time after The Exterminating Angel. It's one of the strangest entries in the filmography of one of Jared and I's favorite filmmakers, Richard Linklater. This week, we're talking Waking Life. And this week, we also have another guest making their debut appearance on the show, He's a good friend of mine from my college days and someone who I've always loved discussing film with. It's Mike O'Donnell. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I've been uh, very excited to... I, I've been listening to it pretty religiously, so uh, big big thrill for me today to be joining you guys, Drew. Always good to see you. And Jared, it's been really nice to meet you. Dude, great to meet you too, man. Really excited to have you with us for this episode, dude. Well, I'll let Jared take it uh, from here. I think we're going to do a little quick questionnaire. How about it, Jared? Yeah, the legendary Dartboard Movie Night guest questionnaire. First question for you, Mike. Best movie theater experience of all time for you personally? Oh, man. I So uh, I think we'll probably talk more about it possibly, but uh, Avatar, hands really? down. Like the original Avatar. Because I think, and obviously the, the plot has its shortcomings, but I think uh, being immersed in that movie in a way that I had not really experienced before is very cool. I'm also going to say the most unsettling movie theater experience I've ever had. I saw Dunkirk in IMAX and wow. my bot, I had like a visceral reaction. Like my blood pressure had raised by the time the movie was over and I like couldn't sleep for a few hours. So both really impactful in their own way. I mean, there's something to be said about that being impressive too. Yeah. Dun- Dunkirk's an interesting one. That, I had an incredible experience seeing that too. That That's one that just like lifts you out of your chair at certain points and you're like, holy shit. Like it, it does things to your body. I, I personally felt like the end was such a catharsis that I was okay coming out of it, but I can understand <laughs> that entirely. Yeah. Never has a movie made a retreat seem so victorious. You know, that is a cool sleight of hand that that movie does. The most British and, movie of all time. Yeah. And, <laughs> And good Lord, that score with that watch ticking. I am so obsessed with it. That's one of my favorite simple scores of all time. Yeah. Excellent answer. Question number two. What is your favorite Steven Spielberg movie? Oh, man. I, I listened the other day when you did the full uh, Steven Spielberg countdown. I've seen most Steven Spielberg movies. I haven't seen all of them. I would say that my it's probably a tie between... Uh, Jaws and the original Jurassic Park. I think both of those are just absolutely incredible. They're fun. And I think when Spielberg doesn't take himself too seriously, that's when I love his movies. I love when they're like fun and campy. Um, Schindler's List I've seen too. Awesome in its own regard. But uh, I just, that, that's why I'm seeing a movie. I'm seeing a movie because I want to have fun. And those two are mm-hmm. both very fun. There's never been a more fun filmmaker than Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. dude, I think that's a great answer. because I And I love... Schindler's List. 
I love Lincoln and things like that. But I think I agree with you when he's tackling stuff that maybe is not so serious is when I resonated with it the most. So I think, yeah. You can, and you can't have a wrong answer in that category. You really can't. All right, next question. What is your favorite movie theater snack? Ooh. When I was a kid, it was probably uh, Sour Patch Kids or something like a Sour Patch Kid, whatever I could find that was the closest to that. Um, but as I've gotten older, it's just it's just a Coke and popcorn. Mm. I, I, you just can't beat it. And I, uh, I want something to snack on the whole movie. And I think that's why it lasts. You need to have like little nibbles throughout. I get it. I get that. Absolutely. How do you, how do you prefer your popcorn? Do you do mid-layer butter, no butter, dry? Uh, butter on top, but like, I, I just feel terrible about myself if I like drench it in butter. So I'm usually <laughs> somewhere on the light to medium butter. Maybe it's my self-hating nature, but I just drown that shit. Oh, I love it. Like, I, it, it, what do I want to eat the most is the drenched in butter. But I, uh, I don't know. I, I have a hard time uh, covering that much of it. Yeah. And then the last question of the questionnaire has nothing to do with films. And it's random and different every time. For Graham, the question was, how do you like your water? Yeah, meaning filtered at home. Do you do you believe in water filters was really the question. Uh, but um, this one is regarding cryptozoology. Are you familiar with cryptozoology? Uh, I, could you be more specific? Yeah. So cryptozoology is the study of creatures that may or may not exist. So okay. like your, your Bigfoots, your Loch Ness monsters and things like that. And of all of the mythical sort of cryptozoological creatures... Which one do you think has the best chance of existing? That that level could be like 1%, but something yeah. in your mind has to be, be a maybe. Uh, I have to go with Loch Ness Monster. I feel like, because we know so little about like what's going on under the water. And I'd say any like deep sea mythical creature probably has the best chance because we just, we haven't gone deep enough to know. So I... I don't think the lock, for what it's worth, I don't think lock this monster exists, but yeah. he could have gotten away with it for a while. And at least we know yeah. like dinosaurs did exist. So it's not totally out of the question. Well, we only need to ask James Cameron what he saw at the bottom of the Mariana Trench in order to, uh, you know, get to the bottom of some of that. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a deep ocean out there. There could be anything. I'm with you. How about you, Drew? Is it Loch Ness for you too? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I, I think I like Mike's answer. Um, I'd like to believe that there's a Bigfoot or a Yeti of some sort. That'd be fun. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's the Bigfoot. I think there's like a, a one a one to point five percent chance of I, I, I could buy it. Like especially Canada, it's a Mainer coming out of them. Yeah, that's a big. That's a lot of land. Canada is massive. I think it's the second largest country on Earth, actually. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going with Bigfoot. But that was the Dartboard Movie Night questionnaire. There it is. Let's do a little board review before we jump into today's movie. Currently, as the board sits, we've got number one, You Can Count on Me. Number two, Ikiru. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Today's episode episode waking life number 19 strange days and number 20 the terminator 
Great rating, Drew. Great rating. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jared. You're I welcome. appreciate that. Always here for you, bud. So let's get into the movie today. Jared, this was one of your selections. I've got two questions. I got one for Jared and then one for Mike after that. How did this get on the board, Jared? And then Mike, what made you want to come on and talk about this movie? I'll start with Jared. How did this get on the board? This is a movie that I became aware of years and years ago. So my sister, when she was in high school, she's, she's uh, three and a half years older than me. So we were always like four years apart school-wise. But she just had this movie on DVD in like 2002-ish, whenever that was. And she was obsessed with it. And she would watch it all the time. And I would be like crossing through the living room and I would see snippets of it. And I would just be like, what is this weird movie? At this point, I was in like seventh grade or something like that. Something about it, though, really did stick with me. And I had memories of it. And the DVD jacket, the poster of that kind of black and white cutout person upside down in the sky really, really stuck with me. And then as we started doing the show um, and I was kind of chatting with my sister, like my, my sister is not really a movie buff at all, but she has really good tastes and has introduced me to stuff. And that somehow Waking Life came up in conversation. And I was like, was that that movie you had when we were growing up? And she's like, yeah, I was obsessed with it. I was just... I was obsessed with lucid dreaming. I was so intrigued by it. I loved it. And I was like, you know, I've never seen that. And Drew and I have never done an animated film. And then when I pulled it up, I was like, holy shit, it's Richard Linklater. Like Drew mentioned, that's one of our favorite filmmakers. And I had no idea that he was involved in this goofy film that my sister was into back in high school. So I was like, let's get it on the board. Drew had also never seen it. And I knew it was going to be about dreaming. I knew it was going to have animation and take animation in a new direction. But outside of that, I didn't know much about it and was really excited that we hit it. And actually, the timing was great because as we're recording this, it's just after the holidays. And I was home with my sister in New Hampshire. So we were able to watch the movie together, which was great. So oh, I'm sure that that made it a really cool experience. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. And, and she was able to explain what she found so interesting to her at her at that stage in life. And I'm sure it's easy for us to see if you caught this in high school when your mind is kind of starting to bloom with bigger ideas. Uh, this could really hit you at the right time. I bet it would be so intoxicating. So, yeah, all those things kind of came together and super, super excited that we got to see it. And as Drew mentioned, we decided to like, hey, let's let's open up the board and reach out to our friends and see who would want to hop on for any of these movies. And Mike, you mentioned how you'd like to join for for Waking Life. When did you first see this movie, and what about it made you be like, yeah, that's a movie I want to I want to discuss with those guys? Yeah, so I kind of have some parallels with um, uh, your own description of it. And this is one that when I was thinking about uh, if I were to join you guys, what movie I'd want to talk about, this is one of them, um, because of how unique it is, but also something you said earlier, Jared, it stuck with me. I probably watched this movie 15 or 16 years ago. I almost think that's the perfect age to see this movie when you're maybe 17 or 18. Um, it's a lot of like philosophy and exploratory. And at the time, I just like ate it up. And I, I certainly didn't think it was a perfect movie then, but there were moments of it that, and we'll probably talk about this later, which of those moments they were. But still to this day, after seeing it one time, I could recite. And there aren't that many movies that I think have really stuck individual scenes with me that way. And also kind of made me think rethink about how 
animation and a score, et cetera, can really drive a movie the way this one does. Um, so I, I'm excited to chat more about that. But the other reason is I, it's such a weird movie. I don't know that we're all going to like it. I don't know that we're all going to agree with the decisions in it. It's like I said before, it's not a perfect movie. And I kind of just want to chat through it um, and analyze some of like the decisions that Linklater makes and it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a shabby movie. Uh, like it, it kind of just, like a lot of Linklater's stuff, it's experimental. It's doing, you know, kind of its own thing and that works and doesn't work in, in different places. So like, yeah, like you're saying, like I'm, I'm excited to talk about it too. And actually it's, it's funny you bring up that you saw it, you know, 15, 16 years ago. Um, because I distinctly remember the first time I heard about this movie was from you, Mike, which was made it even better that you're coming on for this episode. Cause I remember when we were in college, I, I don't remember the context whatsoever. I just remember you being like, this movie's so weird. It's awesome. You got, you got to check it out. And I still to this day had not checked it out until last night. So I'm glad we got to watch it. Comes full circle. I have a question, Mike. Um, do you remember what your first viewing was like? Was it like a DVD? Did someone recommend it to you? Did you find your own way to it? Or is it a little hazy? Yeah. So I was, I, at the time, I thought Lucid Dreaming was really interesting. Um, had never done that before. Uh, and someone recommended this movie, partially because it has that portion explaining some tips on Lucid Dreaming, which are pretty consistent. If you were to like read a book on it, those are a lot of the same things that people recommend. Um, so that I, I thought was interesting. And I literally think I watched it on a laptop, like sitting in my on my bed or something right this is like a totally solo viewing experience which i think is kind of best i know you, obviously your sister has like a connection to it and you guys together but i think this is a movie that a lot of people would probably watch by themselves yeah it, it was cool it gave me the opportunity to occasionally maybe rewind a little section and be like i don't think i caught all that which in this movie i think is helpful sometimes and i just kind of left afterward thinking it was interesting and maybe got me a little more excited to dive into sort of can I figure out how to lose a dream and get into that um so whoever gave me that recommendation online somewhere it was it was the right recommendation yeah and I, I want to kind of talk about the the specific scenes in this movie because this movie is vignette it is very just segmented um so you know I think there's there's good and bad parts to it maybe you know and we we can talk about the merits of that but I think just generally speaking Jared, I want to start with you, given that this is your selection. What are your overall thoughts on the movie? Did you enjoy the experience? Uh, how did how did you feel about Waking Life? I mean, based on kind of what Mike was saying earlier, I think I'm going to echo a lot of those things. It's not a perfect movie. I definitely have some issues with it, you know. But overall, it is just so fresh and interesting and different and unlike anything I've ever seen that I just kind of have to put it in this different category. I've really been wrestling with how to approach talking about it because there are things about it I find so interesting. And then there are other things that are just eye-rolly almost, where I'm like, oh my God, get your head out of your ass. But then there's other stuff that I just really dig. And I have such a fondness for Linklater. I have one serious issue with an element of this film that we'll come to in due time. So overall, I would say I, I did like it a lot, is how I would put it. You know? <laughs> Mike, how long has it been since you last watched this? Uh, I was trying to do the math on it, and I was probably, I think I was probably 17 or 18. So it's been okay. over 15 years since I've seen this movie. It's been a very long time. 
And I was definitely interested to be like, because so much of this movie is like perspective and philosophy, I was like, how is, you know, 32-year-old me going to feel about the movie that I saw when I was 17? Um, And that was kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah. How did it age in between viewing? Because that was just the only other viewing you had, right? Was that first time? Yeah, this was this was my second time. I did watch it twice this week. Um, so I that, that was my second and third viewing. Um, but I would say not as well. Um, I think that Jared, I think you said it really well. Like there's I like the overall theme and idea behind this movie. I think it has some really cool thoughts um, and some things to explore. I also think some of the other elements are so it's so into itself. I guess not self-aware at times of how like up its own ass it is that um, you just like, if they said one more time, like I read this article one time or like, <laughs> Hey, it's like what this philosopher says. And like, I kind of get why they're doing that to show you that like new ideas can come to you from a dream. Um, but it just gets really stuck up after a while. Um and some of those choices I wouldn't have made. So I would say, like, I do like it. I enjoyed it. And I'm grateful for some of the moments that have stuck with me over time. Um, but if I was editing this movie, I would, or writing the script for this movie, I would have been like, please cut this. Please cut that. Like, it's not very self-aware at this point. So, yeah. Um, no, I yeah. think it's really interesting to consider when this movie came out, the generation that made it, you know, in a way, and contrasting that with today because I think that kind of like and that ties into my experience with watching this movie for the first time because and, and I'm I'm 100% in agreement with you guys I think it maybe worked a little bit less for me maybe than it sounds like it worked for you guys I think I'm inherently a very cynical person and this movie is you know it, it I, th- I think it has elements that are cynical but I think ultimately it's not a cynical movie it's a movie about trying to grapple with life but in a positive like open-minded way and when you think about when this movie came out you know it was made I I think it was filmed in 2000 Um, you know it's filmed by by Richard Linklater who is kind of like in a lot of ways one of the major voices of Gen X you know Um, which is this generation that came up in a time where they kind of bridged this gap between our parents' generation where they really didn't deal with a whole lot of strife or, you know, you know, economic instability. So like, like they're kind of this in-between generation. And I think that they had this luxury of, of, you know, you watch movies from the nineties, you know, like reality bites and like, you know, uh, singles and just stuff like this, where it's just like, they, they love doing these pondery kind of thought exercise, um, type, type things. And this movie is very much in that vein. And I think, you know, watching this movie now, coming to it from the perspective of, you know, our generation where we can barely fucking afford to buy a house, you know, like, like, and, and support a family. Like, like I, I have this mentality where I'm like, yeah, that's all, that's all well and good. Like I'm cool with open thought and like, like these exercises, but what is this actually getting us to? What are we actually doing with that? Um, and, and how is this impacting me in my daily life and, and, you know, the pursuit of happiness on a daily basis. So like for me, a lot of this stuff tends towards navel gazy bullshit that I'm just like, fine, but let's, let's talk about something tangible that actually like has a real, uh, uh, 
you know, effect on my life. I don't know. I, I'm of two minds of it because I, I do, I, again, like I find a lot of this really interesting to ponder and, and that'll come back, come back around when we kind of talk about specific sequences in the movie. Um, but overall, I, 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 I don't know if this movie totally connected with me. Well, you know what is so frustrating about it, Drew, is because of the movie's premise, it makes it really difficult in a way to argue with it. Like, because we're just, we're in a dreamscape. So I, I completely agree with a lot of uh, your your negative points of like, to an extent of like, yeah, but what's the point? Like, what good does it do me that these people passed a crossword puzzle that, that after it had been completed the day before? You know what I mean? And, and I like the movies playing with these ideas. But when you when you try to confront this movie, I'm like, yeah, but what's the point, asshole? The movie can just go like, it's a dream, baby. Like, dreams are just like that. They don't really have points. They're slippery eels. It's just like, God damn it. Like, the movie is really well constructed in that way where it has a lot of armor on it based on the fact that it is tackling dreams to me anyway in my interpretation the entire film is a dream i think i think that's a pretty fair take i agree and i i might disagree with that but we'll get to that later oh nice um so in my yeah my impression everything's a dream so like the way it kind of flows in and out of conversations and things and the fact that they don't really have they're just so, like you're saying, navel gazy and so like highfalutin. And again, it's like, ah, oh, but that is dreamy. And so I don't know, it kind of works, but it also frustrates at the same time. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's talk about it now. I mean, Mike, what, what's your interpretation of, of it as far as where the dream begins and ends? So I think there's, I think there's two ways you could look at it. And in both of them, he's kind of dreaming, but it's, is he dreaming or is he dead? And I think that to some degree, towards the end of the movie, they start going down this path of connecting dreams with death. And he talks about like connecting with the, the dead people through his dream or whatever. That scene that Link later is actually in one of the two mm-hmm. scenes. Um, but I, I think it ends, and this is obviously a huge spoiler. But if you're listening to this, it's going to be a huge spoiler <laughs> the whole way through. Oh, yeah. um, it, one of the last thing Link later says is like, "Yeah, well, it's just a dream, so you can just." wake up whenever you want so just wake up and then in the next scene he's dreaming again because he's floating up towards the sky and i guess you could interpret that as he's waking up in that scene but it also kind of aligns with some of the other conversations they had had previously about you know could your last seconds after you die just be one continuous stream and uh is there is it possible that because he can't wake up or because the people he's interacting with some of them are dead that he is out actually also dead um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's in, it's intentionally ambiguous, but I kind of lean towards he might be dead because at the end when he's told if it's easy, just wake up and he can't wake up. That was kind of my interpretation of it. I kind of like that interpretation, especially because I think, I think Linklater is really deliberate about putting, um, that, that scene with Julie, Haw- Julie Delpy and, and Ethan Hawke, uh, pretty early in the movie. And he's, he's layering in that idea of the last six to 12 minutes of your life being an endless rehashing of, of your life and kind of digging back into things. Like, I think, I think I, I like that interpretation because I think it, it attributes a lot more intentionality behind that structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, 
that is kind of the way I was leaning on it too. It's just like, oh, I think he is dead. And that, that key, that scene is the linchpin for me as well, Drew, that scene of Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke. I think that kind of explains the movie in some way. It's like, oh yeah, this is just his sort of inescapable dream state post death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Do you guys think the movie starts out in that scenario? Like the whole getting picked up by the duck boat dropped off and hit by the car. Is that like his mind recollecting a portion, like, recalling a portion of what happened to him was that actually not part of the dream it's hard to believe that the duck boat was was not in the dream but i don't know maybe well i mean i think i think as i'm cycling that through my head i think it it makes sense to to consider that the scene of him getting hit by the car is maybe how he actually dies and what triggers this whole thing and it's him recalling that event and that's why it's got that kind of dreamlike you know, every, everything like, you know, the sheet of paper that says, look to your right kind of thing. Like, like obviously that's, that probably didn't happen when it killed him. Uh, but that's his, his recollection in a dream state. Um, I think obviously like the scene of him talking to that guy in the duck boat, uh, um, is, is a dream because, you know, he's they're they're like, where do you want us to drop you off? And he's like, I don't know, anywhere works really. Like it, it he's always in a dream, I think, in, in this movie. It's just where is that dream taking place? Is that in his sleep or is that in, you know, post death? So I think that's really the argument. Totally agree. And I actually, Jared, I like the way you described it. I, I think that that is my interpretation as well of like that's not actually what happened, but maybe that's him recollecting back. And I, I almost feel like there's a lot of scenes in the first 30 minutes of the movie, maybe 40 minutes of the movie that are kind of like death adjacent or like a little bit more. Well, I guess it's like different in the first half of the movie. There's a lot of like intense, like instantaneous, like someone just dies in a scene, but then later in the dreamscape, it's more like talking philosophically about death. And I don't know if that's supposed to represent like his journey where like first, I don't know. I I did look, he's coming to terms with his death in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and I looked for like a description of Linklater explaining or something like that. I couldn't find one, so I, I don't know what the actual interpretation of the movie is. But um, that's that's kind of what I got out of it. Is like maybe early on, I do think he's out for the whole movie. I think, mm-hmm. and there's the scene in the beginning where he's like starting to float and he grabs the car door, and then at the end he's floating and he doesn't grab the car door, and either he's waking up or he's uh, accepting his death or something. Um, but I kind of lean it's the accepting his death over the period of the movie. Yeah, now that you say that, I, I think I agree. Like, um, because that whole link later portion of that conversation at the pinball machine of him talking about how our, our life is just saying no to death and not accepting, you know, joining the next level. So, yeah, maybe maybe that not grabbing the car door was intentional to some degree and just allow himself to be released into potentially the next stage. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Jared and I are big fans of Richard Linklater and, uh, you know, he's a, he's a filmmaker that I've always been fascinated by just because he is so willing to do all these, these interesting, you know, exercises in filmmaking, you know, boyhood is one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years. Um, I think he's just a brilliant filmmaker. I mean, the before series is, is maybe my favorite trilogy of films ever made. Um, I wanted to get Mike's perspective. What's your your overall feelings on Linklater? Are you pretty well versed in his filmography, or do you have a lot of uh, gaps there? Yeah, I've seen. I, I think I've seen pretty much all of his major films except for the Before series. So I haven't seen the Before series, um, but I've seen uh, Slacker, Dazed and Confused. Um, 
School of Rock is interesting. It's kind of nothing like anything else he makes. Um, it's a perfect I, family film. Yeah. So actually, I was watching an interview with him, and it was interesting. Uh, he was going through his filmography and talking about it. And for School of Rock, it almost sounded like he did it as a challenge. Like mm-hmm. he was like, I can do that too. And it works. I mean, it turned out great. Uh, and he obviously works really well with child actors. A lot of his movies have child actors, including he brings his daughter into a lot of stuff. But I thought Boyhood was great. Really, really hit me pretty hard. Yeah, so I'd say uh, I'd say I've enjoyed most of the movies of his I've seen. And I think the way he makes movies that they kind of just flow is it's different. It's interesting. And sometimes I'm just in the mood for that. Yeah. Jared, uh, what, what got you into Linklater originally? Well, I would say what really took it for me to the next level was when Drew introduced me to the Before Trilogy. And that was, I was probably 25 or so when that, when, when Drew was like, hey, you got to see these movies. And I, I have such a deep love for all of those movies. It kind of reflects one of the things I love most about Richard Linklater is how, um, remember that boat driving guy in the dream world who was like talking about the box of crayons. He's like, Draw outside lines, man. Do whatever you want. You don't have to draw, draw off the page. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but I really think Richard Linklater has an amazing mind at recognizing what film can do. You look at something like Boyhood and the Before Trilogy, and he takes these ideas of like, how can we play with film in real time? Like, what if we actually had this actor age over 10 years and we film snippets of it here and there? And, we, we sh- and it's like... Such a such a cool idea about thinking about film and what it can be and what it can do. So those are, I think, his strengths. And that's when I really enjoy the work that he does. I also really dug School of Rock when it came out. And I didn't know he was related to it and, and associated with it, really, until relatively recently. I was like, oh, shit, that was Linklater? I was like, I, I really do love that movie. I love Jack Black in that movie. Yeah, I was going to say, you definitely give uh, Linklater credit for being able to find talented people uh, early in their careers. He's done that like time and time again. Uh, it, I feel like, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine when he started working with Ethan Hawke, that was pretty early in Ethan Hawke's career, at least as being a major movie star. Dazed and Confused is just chock full of like stars when they were incredibly young who became really big celebrities. I don't know how he does that or finds those people, but it seems like he's pretty talented at that. He is. I, I think he's just a really great collaborator. He knows how to find people that have similar sensibilities to him and let them do what they do best. And, you know, going back to Ethan Hawke, like you brought up, you know, Hawke was a child actor. He was in some like Disney movies in the 80s. Um, you know, he was in uh, White Fang and, and Explorers. Then he was in Dead Poets Society um, you know, and, and kind of, so he was, he was getting a lot of attention as an actor, but he, he hadn't really gotten to, to sing, you know, he hadn't really gotten to, to show what he could really do until he worked with Richard Linklater. 1995 before sunrise was their first collaboration, I believe. And he then wrote the, the subsequent two sequels to that movie with Julie Delpy and Richard Linklater. So he, you know, collaborated completely with him and and it it allowed his voice to come out and him to to fully you know uh materialize as an artist and i think like that's really what linklater does best yeah i i agree with most of that but then there's also portions of it i i disagree i do think he has a knack for recognizing talent but then i also think he 
does some really big miscasts from time to time. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, God, what are you, what are you thinking? This person is not right. for What's this an role. example for that? The biggest example I can think of is Wiley Wiggins. Like I, I really, we're getting into haterade territory here. Just so you guys know, get on alert. Jared's going into hate zone. I cannot stand that actor. I despise him. We're sp- <laughs> I, I mean, we're, we're probably basing that entirely on days and confused, right? For the most part, and this, and Waking Life. So you don't like him in this? No. I, I I had a really hard time with him. But I think it's because my hatred burns so fiercely about him in Dazed and Confused. I think he is <laughs> he is not a good actor. And like he is really poorly miscast. And I think he's just one of those directorial blind spots where Linklater was just like, oh man, he's nailing it. He's doing it perfectly. And I'm just like... What are you thinking, Rick? This guy is kind of a dog. Let's talk about Wiley Wiggins. Uh, You know, Mike, you brought up when we were kind of talking through what we wanted to get into in this episode about just the idea of him as a, like, uh, the silent protagonist or or the mostly wordless protagonist, and that you kind of felt like he was doing that in Dazed and Confused. Do I have that right? 100%. I I mean, I I feel like in Dazed and Confused, he has very limited dialogue. Here he has very limited dialogue. And (laughs) there's multiple reasons why that could happen. It could be that they were trying to get dialogue to work and it just wasn't because I will say the times that he delivers dialogue don't always hit here or in dazed and confused. But I also like, he didn't do much after these two movies, right? Almost nothing, which also kind of brings me up to the idea of like, are there challenges with him as an actor in general? I think he's very interesting looking as a young star. Um, He has the hair thing going, which works for (laughs) dazed and confused I mentioned earlier, there are some scenes where I think his facial expressions tell a lot and nail it. Jared, you're probably going to be like, you feel like it's too much. Um, I like some of those. So I think there's times that I do think he hits it, but I do wonder, given the information that he's never really done much after this and that he has very little in the terms of speaking lines, if that was related to his acting performance or if it's just Linklater saying, I want you to experience this as the main character. And so I'm not going to give them much to say because it's kind of a, an avatar for you. Like you are going through this moment and the, the less I make that person talk, the less I take you out of feeling immersed in it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I, I think I, the first time I saw Dazed and Confused, he definitely annoyed the shit out of me. I, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like I didn't, I didn't enjoy it at all, but I think, as I watched that movie, and that's a movie that in general totally didn't work for me the first time I watched it. But as I sat with it and and just got on its wavelength and let it just be what it is, I, I grew to love, love, love that movie. I've seen that movie dozens of times, I feel like, because it's just a movie that I'll throw on in the background. It's just like, it's perfect background noise, you know, great music. Uh, you can just check in for little scenes of, of great dialogue and banter and your point about Wiley Wiggins as just this this kind of avatar for for the audience is is perfect because in that movie, yes, the performance isn't great, but it he's there so that you're watching the movie through his eyes. That's true of this movie too. He bothered me a million times less in this movie. I did I nothing about his performance was off putting to me really in this movie. So I don't really get that totally from you, Jared, but oh you know, Hey, God. if it didn't work for you, it didn't Dude, work. I am chomping at the bit to light this guy up. <laughs> it's so unfair. Like he doesn't deserve it. But like we talk about on this show a lot about, and there's so many actors, you know, 
of any type of gender that I just love. We always say like, I love the way they move, I love the way they speak, the way they talk, everything is just great. It's completely the negative with everything about this guy for me. I hate the way he moves. I hate the way he looks. I hate his haircut. I hate the way he talks. I hate the way he delivers dialogue. I'm just like, this guy is so bad. And even a layer of fancy dancy animation cannot diminish my hatred for this performer. I really have a hard time with him. And like, it's kind of, Wiggins is just getting battered and bruised. I'm, I'm, it's, it's so obnoxious. I'm super glad you guys are on his side to a a vast degree here. Cause it would be ridiculous if we were all just torching him, but I can't stand the performer. I really can't. What, What is it specifically in this movie? Cause he doesn't do, anything in this movie like, i mean like so i think what i what i like is with... i i enjoy like watching him listen to people i think he's he's perfectly fine in in those bits i think he works as just this this silent guy there when your hatred burns as fierce as mine and you hate his face <laughs> i don't want to see him reacting to shit because i'm just like oh i can't stand that dumb look and that stupid haircut and he's just mm. oh he's pensive now but um but i um i think it, it actually is coupled with a bit of a flaw that I see in Link later, which is like, and I, and it's also something about his movies that I love, is the sort of philosophical mumbo jumbo territory that he likes to dip his toes in. And I know, Mike, that you haven't seen the Before trilogy yet. Yeah. And I mean, I've said already, I'm super, super fan. I love it. There's a lot of kind of highfalutin philosophical talk in those movies. It's kind of an important. A lot of the talking of sounds like this, yeah. this movie for sure. Totally. Exactly. But um, a lot of times, whenever Linklater does that sort of dialogue, I feel like it's really just coming from him. And I think one of his weaknesses is he doesn't really tweak his writing style to the character that's speaking the words. Some actors that he works with can step up and deliver it organically to a point where it does sound like it's not Linklater's writing. It sounds like it's the character forming these thoughts and speaking them. But there are also other actors that he works with that can't really pull it off as much. And it just sounds like Linklater is talking to us from behind the screen and it's just kind of coming through this puppet. So I think sometimes he can kind of fall short there. And there were a couple of, of examples in the movie. I do think Wiley fits that category for me of where it's just like, I don't buy that this person, like, especially when he's talking to like the redhead, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, I don't even know if I can ask this, but what is it like to be a character in a dream? And like, he's like describing what he's going through. And I'm just like, I just don't buy that. This is how this person speaks. I don't, buy, it doesn't seem natural to me at all. And other people, I would just quickly throw in that category would be like the guy who, uh, commit suicide by fire, which I actually like that person's voice. And I think it's a really interesting scene. The way he's talking about society and the news, it doesn't sound organic to me at all. It does. It sounds like straight out of Linklater's mouth. Uh, same thing for those girls in the coffee shop who are talking mm-hmm. about uh, growing older. And like, it just sounds, again, it just sounds too much like Linklater and not to enough To be like fair, a lot of those people are non-actors. And, and I think that's part of the problem. And, and that's that's a major gripe that I had with this movie, which is what works for me in the Before series is the fact that we have, we, it's two things. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy know how to deliver this dialogue, partially because they're they're kind of co-writing it and it's, it's, it's coming from their mouths as well as Linklater's. But, 
also that those movies are grounded in character and that those scenes of philosophical discussion are telling you something about that character and driving forward a narrative. Whereas this movie, it's just, you're just getting this snippet in the abstract. You don't, you don't have anything else tying it together. And I think that kind of hangs those actors out to dry a little bit because it doesn't give any, I don't know how to put this. It, it doesn't really like give the character agency in the way that they're talking. And that's, I think, why it feels like it's just coming from Linklater's head. For me, I have, I have a lot more trouble latching onto those conversations and really digesting them because I don't have a background in who those people are and why maybe they're coming from that place. Actually, I have to say, Jared, I had written in my notes that exact scene that you just mentioned with the girls at the coffee shop, and my note was their cadence of speaking takes me out of the movie because mm. it just doesn't feel organic. And yeah, there's a couple times in this movie where that happens where it just like, like, yeah, I just totally get lost in the fact that the dialogue's not organic. And I almost wonder if like, I feel like there's like two things that I think I, that while we're talking on like later before we move on from it, that I feel like are huge strengths of his one is uh, his ability to, tell a movie about ideas without having to follow a specific plot and make you feel like you're involved in the conversation. I think he's really good at that. And the second one is kind of what you hit on Jared, which is like, not only does he try new and uh, experimental things, but he finds the movie theme that fits that perfectly. Like boyhood works because not just the idea, but like the, how he chose to focus that idea around a plot makes perfect sense. And I think this movie is a good example too, where like this movie without that animation style, without that score is a very, di- it's just like a weird movie that doesn't really work nearly as well. And I, I think he does do a good job of like, okay, here's the experimental thing I want to do. Slacker would be another good example of this. How can I do that in a way that actually works? And that forces him to think outside the box. Um, and I think he's pretty good at that. I think where he would probably benefit is working with a collaborator. Because I think his dialogue choices, his ability to find the right people and put them in the right place, even though he's really good at finding strong people, I, I do kind of see what you're coming from, Jerry, where like sometimes it's like, like why would you use a non-actor for this? Like they're acting. It's it's not an organic conversation. Why wouldn't you use somebody who knows what they're doing? Maybe it's a budget thing. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like he misses there. And And sometimes it works really well, like when they have those more philosophical conversations that are conducted by like professors. Right. that are kind of just like riffing like they're not performing really they're just speaking how they would maybe speak in their office to a student or whatever yeah, it, it just works. feels like a lecture that they're giving yeah yeah and I, I find so I find he can really pull it off a lot of times you know you gotta, gotta kind of just take the good with the bad with him and you know you're gonna get sort of that kind of dense philosophical sort of heady talk a lot of times but that's also part of the charm and it's part of the thing we love about him so yeah, I mean, I can I could poke at it from here and there. I think it's fair to do that, but overall, my love for him is so deep, and I totally agree with what you're saying. What you were saying, Mike, he doesn't stretch. He he really fits the story to the technological thing he wants to break through with. He pairs them so well; it never seems forced. Like this whole rotoscoping animation that they really pioneered for this film and really utilized makes perfect sense for a, a, a movie that's analyzing the dream world. It's a perfect fit. It's not shoehorned in. Even though I do think, as I've been saying, he does shoehorn in the wrong character from time to time or the wrong actor, he never shoehorns in 
the wrong visual approach or visual style for the type of story he wants to tell. That is something he is so good at, I think. And yeah. one of my favorite things about him. I want to circle back to the animation side of it because we definitely want to need to talk about that. But before we move off of these, these segments, let's, let's kind of talk about our favorites and our, our least favorites of it. I think, you know, it's pretty clear that we didn't, all, all three of us probably didn't really enjoy that conversation between the two, the two women. Uh, you know, I think personally the the scene of the guy in the jail doesn't really work for me. It feels a little bit removed from everything else going on. Um, that one confuses know. me, but I like, I, I like the, perf- the delivery of the, the performance is fine. It's just, yeah. it, it, to me, it just, the, as a sequence within the movie feels somewhat, uh, on the outside of everything else that's happening. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Uh, any I mean, others that yeah. stick out as, as like, not as mu- not as much fun for you guys. Uh, I had both of those on my end. I, I agree. They both feel just like they don't fit for different reasons. Um, there's one where there's someone who has like a really interesting accent, almost sounds like inhuman a little bit while they're speaking. Um, and I don't know if that's uh, just a really thick accent or, or what it is, but it, it's not really the accent itself. I, I'm just using that to identify it. He's speaking really fast and it's kind of hard to follow. And I think he's talking about like suicide, but I can't really even tell what he's saying. And I don't know, that could be more of like him realizing that he's talking to dead people or something. I don't know. But I just felt it like it was, it didn't really fit for me. And I didn't really even fully grasp, even after watching it a couple of times, what the point of that was. Yeah. For me, another one of those, and it might be this one that you're talking about, Mike, was the one on the bridge at night where he's walking with that person. And they're like, oh, I dance with my absurdities. And this person is just going on and on. And I'm just like... What what is this person on about? And that I would fall into that pit a couple of, in a couple of sort of the vignettes in this movie, where I'd be like, I don't know what this person is saying, and I don't care, and I'm I'm kind of I'm just like tap out of, of one scene and then tap back in for another, and what I would imagine is true with this movie is various different people tap in and tap out of different scenes, which is a cool thing to think, but for me. That one on the bridge was one where I was just like, I'm not getting any of this, and I don't, I don't even care to try. That one's actually interesting because the guy that's doing that scene, his name is Timothy Speed Levitich. Uh, Levitch. He goes by Speed Levitch. But he's a guy who actually, uh, Bennett Miller, the guy who made Moneyball and Capote and a few other films, made a documentary in the 90s about that guy because apparently that guy is like, the i forget what what he calls himself but he's the ultimate tour guide basically of of new york city is is how he goes and at the time when this was made he was like 25 and was just this kind of like off the wall you know thinking guy that that link later found fascinating and so he did that little vignette with him but i agree with you that that one just like did not connect with me because i'm like i i have no idea what you're saying dude um but the other one that didn't work for me was uh, the one with the four guys where they're just kind of like throwing out, you know, weird like one-liners about, you know, existentialist one-liners. And, and it's just like, that's the most navel-gazy that the, the movie gets in my opinion, where it's just like, you are so far up your own ass. I don't know what you're even doing here. I almost feel like, I, I very much agree with you. It's awful. And I almost feel like he's trying to poke fun at those people. Because they end with something about how they're like all theory and no action or something. Yeah. And I'm wondering if like, I hope it's part of the joke because those guys are just insufferable. Like that whole Seriously. scene is just insufferable. It, actually, I've got one more. Um, 
And it gets saved because it becomes the scene where he asks the woman what it's like being in a dream. But when that woman is explaining her soap opera idea, like if I was at a party standing next to that woman and she's explaining to me like her soap opera idea, I would be like, I need to go get another drink and leave that conversation <laughs> as quick as I could. Yeah, dude, I, that's totally another checkout for me. I'm right there with you. And I love redheads, even if they're animated. But I would be like, nah, I got to get out of here. Um, anywhere but this. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I don't even have to pee. I just want to be alone. Being alone is better than being with you. Well, now that we've sufficiently savaged a lot of these these vignettes, what were your favorites? Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot that I really, really did dig. I think my favorite is probably the one in the bar where that guy's telling the story of the person trying to steal the tires at the gas station and uh, pulls a gun in the, in the dream state. The two people conversing end up shooting each other. Uh, I just something about that one was felt so organic. It felt like such a true story in the way. I mean, again, I was kind of not shredding, but pointing out that a lot of times Linklater's dialogue is too thick for me. Um, not the case here. I was like, that is just such a true and natural story that's like just being told. And I just that that whole thing just had such an element of naturalism, which is bizarre to say out a a scene within a dream movie but that one really really worked for me that was one of my favorites mm-hmm. i really like the guy who hops out of the train you know that mm. the guy's like are you mm-hmm. a dreamer and you know it's like the world is in is in its most perilous times most interesting time to be alive just don't be bored uh that was one that i found really successful to me and i, I really enjoyed that one mike any of this stick out for you uh, I mentioned earlier, I, I think the guy playing the ukulele for me is a really good one. Um, his first line about like not not being awake in life's waiting room or asleep in life's waiting room. I forget how he words it. Um, mm-hmm. And then his story about being at work all day and then realizing that's a dream and how like painful that is. Um, really liked that scene. I The next scene where the guy where he like goes this down next to the guy uh, who explains the lucid dreaming is kind of hit and miss for me. I think that guy is oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. I think he's like an interesting character. Some of his dialogue is just like feels a little disjointed to me. Um, that one but, might be my favorite, actually. It's interesting. Let's okay. So let's talk about that guy because he uh, his name's John Christensen. Um, I I looked this up and he passed away. I guess right after they filmed the movie, he's actually oh, wow. in uh, the credits are dedicated to him at the end. Interesting. Um, and uh, he to me was somebody who I was like, this guy's infectious. Like I feel like he has found another one of those guys who like I would watch in other movies uh, and was really bummed to see that. I was like, I wonder what else this guy has done. And that, that was the last movie he made, at least that I could find. Yeah. That's really sad to hear. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Uh, and and you're right. I mean, it is like, there's an energy to him that you're, he pulls you in, like you lean in when, when he's on screen a little bit. Cause you're like, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's just the fact that somebody finally in the movie is talking about something grounded where it's like, you know, it, it's something where where I'm actually, as opposed to just listening to a philosophical idea, it's a guy saying, "Hey, do you want to access more of this? Here's how you do this." And I don't know, it just it pulled me right in, and I I really enjoyed that conversation. But I agree with you, the ukulele is also a major standout. Yeah. How did you guys feel about Ethan Hawke's uh, scene in the movie? That's that's my other favorite. Um, but I also think that I, I've, I'm coming in loaded with that because I love the before series and those are the same characters from the before series. Yeah. Yeah. 
Totally agree. I, I liked it, but I think part of it is my bias of like, and I didn't know they were coming. That was a real surprise for me when we got there in the movie. I was like, oh shit, it's a scene from a before movie, like tucked in this movie. That's amazing. What's interesting about that sequence is that this movie came out in between the first movie in the series and the second movie in the series. And the first movie leaves on a major cliffhanger. So people were, were very excited when when these characters just popped up all of a sudden. Um, I won't spoil what that cliffhanger is for you, Mike, but it's fun. It's fun that they did that check-in and, and that, that conversation they have is could, could literally just be a scene out of that movie. Like that's exactly how those two characters talk throughout those movies. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, and it even fits within what happens in, which I'll speak vaguely too, but what happens in the before trilogy, because we're in the dream world. So this could be just a dream moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I also really liked the uh, the the little vignette of uh, Kim Krizan, I believe her name is, um, but she's one of the co-writers of Before Sunrise, the first movie, and uh, she's the one talking about like language and and how you know kind of uh, mm. words that we've applied to things. Do we actually are we actually each perceiving the same meaning and things like that? I don't know. That I found really like interesting to kind of mull over in my head. Yeah, I like that one. I like the guy talking about free will as well. And I like the little animation tweaks they were doing in those. Like yes. when the linguist person was talking about love, like something came out of her mouth and like zipped over. I really did like when they started playing with the goofiness of, of the animation. It just literally what was on screen. I thought that was super fun. I really loved the duck boat guy. Like He's fun. That, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned how much I liked his crayon thing earlier, but... I think that's an example of someone who can filter the link later sound if it baked into the writing through himself organically. And it sounds like it's this guy's thinking. And I think he did a, did a great, great job with that. Yeah. You mentioned it. I think it was an excellent choice and one that I think kind of makes the movie that they did different animation styles for different vignettes. And it's all kind of related to some degree. It feels like a continuous movie, but I think the fact and I notice this more and more on the rewatch is how different it actually gets. It gets very different sometimes, but it feels very organic that it's making that shift. And I think that combined with the score changing very rapidly helps to make you feel like you're kind of just along this ride um, and makes the different segments feel very different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about that guy at the fish tank. I mean, how different, like he's like, it's like uh, surrealism kind of painting you know starry night type shit this guy's just talking and then it's sometimes it's much more realistic to a degree i totally well, agree mike yeah and then they like a, a, one of the characters they just animate as a monkey instead of you know a human <laughs> being uh it's i i love stuff like that and and but my favorite is is like you were saying you know with the love thing where the animation is reflecting what they're saying and, 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 you know, alterations to their body and to their environment are happening in, in, you know, collaboration with what they're talking about. I, I love when, whenever it goes into that territory. Um, I think now we got to bring up uh, the elephant in the room, the, the man who in some ways resembles an elephant, Mr. Alex Jones, uh, how did you guys know he was in this movie? I had no idea till I watched this. I had no idea until the second viewing. So I watched this twice this week. And the first time I watched it, the guy in the car shouting and, and blah, 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 and bloviating. I'm like, yeah, it's a little intense. 
uh, the guy kind of makes some good points, I guess. And then on the second viewing, I like watch it. And I was like, that's Alex Jones. He's <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Did I just catch myself kind of agreeing with Alex Jones? I was totally <laughs> caught off guard, man. It really threw me for a loop. I, but no, but to answer your question directly, Drew, I did not know he was going to be in it. And even on first viewing, I didn't know that was him. Mike, did you know, uh, did you, I mean, obviously things have changed since you first saw this movie, but. Yeah. So I have kind of a unique perspective here because when I watched it way back when, I remember I was doing like, you know, you watch a movie like this and you, you Google it, you, you get other perspectives. It's, it's that kind of movie where I was like curious, Oh, like, is he alive or dead? Like, what, what do you guys think? And, uh, Someone somewhere on message boards, whatever, it definitely came up that this guy, Alex Jones, was like kind of a controversial figure and they were surprised he was in the movie. And I didn't think much of it, but I remembered finding that. I remember finding like, because he's from Texas and I guess Linklater's from Texas, does a lot of filming in Texas. And it was like, oh, you guys don't know who this person is, but if you were from Texas, you would know this guy. He's like a conspiracy theorist. So when Alex Jones became a crazy person, I knew him as the guy from Waking Life versus the (laughs) other way around. So I, when I saw him come up, I was like, I remember this guy. He was in Waking Life, and now he's like actually an insane psycho conspiracy theorist, crazy person. Um, and it's been a little—I don't know if enjoyable is the right word—but a little bit more interesting to watch him evolve and devolve over time after seeing that scene in that movie. Yeah. No, I, I read an article. Um, somebody asked Linklater about this a few years ago you know, kind of at the height of the Trump era and, you know, all this stuff happening, um, you know, how he felt looking back on the fact that he put him in this movie. And it's interesting because at the time when this was made, Alex Jones was the host of a public access show. Like he was nobody. Um, he auditioned to be in this movie. Like they, like it was not like, you know, a thing where he was a name and they were bringing him in to like, you know, do what everyone knows him as doing. He was a local figure. I, I, you know, at the time it sounds like the way Linklater talks about it, he's, he obviously does not like this person now and nor did he really like him at the time. It was more like a curiosity than anything. And to him, you know, he, the way he put it was, Alex Jones has always been a contrarian. Like he's the guy who who hates whatever is at the at, at, you know that he feels is at the top or is is defining the thing. So like you know during the Bush Cheney era, Alex Jones was anti Bush Cheney, and that was that was his stance. And obviously Linklater is is a very liberal uh, person. It, it's kind of like the the enemy of your enemy is your friend sort of thing. You know that that's how he he kind of saw it, and and. I think I think he's regretful a little bit in hindsight because it kind of gave him a platform, but at the time he just kind of saw him as this funny, weird figure that could just rant and and go on a you know a, a complete you know unhinged uh, uh, monologue. Yeah, I mean, I I hope he doesn't regret it because you know Link later does have sort of fascination with some of the quirky components of Texas society, and I think. Like you're saying, at this time, it's not like he did this with Alex Jones like a year ago. Like this is, like you're saying, Drew, an unknown local a public access TV guy that I bet Linklater was like, this guy's a little over the top, a little inter- interesting, but is probably somewhat emblematic of a, t- of a style of Texan. The sort of ranting, self-proclaimed freedom obsessive, you know. And he probably thought, oh, this would be a good person to throw in this sort of 
a movie about dreams, just have this guy ranting kind of to the, to the clouds, you know? So I hope he doesn't feel shame in the, the decision. You know? No, like, looking back at the article, it actually, it doesn't indicate that he feels any shame about it, but uh, it, it's more just talking about the fact that at the time they kind of just found him as funny, you know, more than anything. I really wanted to talk about this movie in the way that it is sort of a technical exercise almost more than a movie because there's no narrative through line really to this movie. I mean, there is like in the sense that, you know, it's a guy dreaming and and trying to wake up and, you know, the lucid dreaming stuff, but it's not like there's not a a plot to it really at all. Um, It's really just these vignette segments and, 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 Honestly, I feel like the movie in some ways could function almost better as a YouTube series than it does as a movie. Um, But I wanted to talk about movies as technical exercises because I think it's really interesting when filmmakers are like, this new technology, I just really want to try this out and see what I can do with it. And, you know, I'm thinking of movies like, uh, Robert Zemeckis's attempts at mocap only movies with like the Polar Express and Beowulf and uh, A Christmas Carol. And then I'm thinking of uh, Ang Lee doing his HFR, his high frame rate stuff with Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk and Gemini Man. Um, you know, another example I could could throw out there that's kind of, you know, maybe not totally in this ballpark, but the Lion King remake that Jon Favreau did a couple years ago, terrible movie, like no reason for it to exist in my opinion, but you could make the argument that that movie was made as like a, what if we made photorealistic animals that talked and, and sang? Does that work, you know? And in this movie, you know, it's digital rotoscoping technology. Rotoscoping is a technology that's been around since literally the formation of film, uh, it basically is just, you know, draw, uh, creating an outline of something on the screen and then, you know, layering something over the top of that. You know, uh, an example of rotoscoping in, in classic film, Star Wars, the lightsabers in the original trilogy are rotoscoped. That's how they, they did that, that effect on screen. Um, obviously, they didn't have CGI effects at that time, so that's how they did that. What did you guys feel about just the rotoscoping effect did it work for you i really i really dug the rotoscope what i heard um i heard the story behind this film is that Linklater was kicking around this idea for like the better part of like it was like 10 or 20 years for this story but couldn't really find the right way to attack it and did not think it could work if you just shot it in a traditional way which is interesting because I, before I saw that interview, I was watching the movie for the first time. And I had that question of like, would this just work if they shot it a little more straight? If they didn't do this whole roto technique. But it definitely sounds like Linklater did not think it would. And then this technology came to him and he was like, oh, now it works. So I tend to like it when the story comes first and then the technology arrives that the story can take advantage of. I get more suspicious of it if it's reverse engineered. If the technology arrives first and then people say, well, what can we do with this? Which maybe is silly, but uh, I'm just such a believer in story being the king of things that I want that to be what leads to, you know, I want that to come first, I guess. But if the result is good, I guess it doesn't really matter uh, which came first. But 
but I really did um, dig the rotoscope in this in this movie, and yeah, I thought it I thought it really fit. What did you think, Mike? So, as a viewer who's enjoying the movie, I think it's crucial to the storytelling. I do think it was the right move to do this for the storytelling. It makes the movie work. I would imagine if I was the producer or I was trying to make money off this movie, it probably scared away some people. I think adult animation, especially in 2001, is pretty tough to sell. And uh, I'll bet the movie's gross probably suffered as a result of that decision. But I think as an artist, and you can tell it's a passion project of his because he's literally putting himself in it, telling a lot of like the crucial moments. So you can tell how important this movie is to him. I think it was the right decision. I think it, it adds things that would be really difficult to do live. Uh, Drew, would love to get your thoughts since you probably enjoy this the least out of all of us. I think that I'm with Jared in the sense that I, the, the animation aspect and the way that they did it works within what they're trying to do in this, in this movie. Um, you know, going back to some of the other ones I, I brought up, uh, I'm, I'm a big defender of Gemini Man, though I did not see that in, in HFR, but Billy Lynn's ha- Halftime Walk is just flat out not a good movie, and I have no idea why that movie needed to be in high frame rate. So, like, that's an example of, like, where I, I feel like the technical exercise superseded the storytelling. Here, I think it it augments the storytelling in a way that that actually makes sense, and and I like that they're doing something unique and dreamy in that way. And I actually think that like, you know, I was thinking while I was watching it, would this be better if they just straight up animated it instead of doing what they did, which I don't know. Did you, here's a question for you. Did, did you guys see the YouTube video of the, the raw footage before they rotoscoped it? I saw a video that went into that. They literally filmed this entire movie on DV, you know, digital video cameras, just like handy cams that that you would use in your, you know, home videos uh, back in the day. And you can go on YouTube and see the raw footage of of mo- a lot of these scenes. There's like 12 minutes of it on YouTube, and it's it's literally just, you know, it looks like a home movie of them just like sitting there talking and you know doing this stuff. And I watched that and I was like, part of me enjoys watching this without it because I can I can maybe even get into like what they're talking about a little bit more I'm not distracted by all the images but anyway that's just that's a side thing I I was thinking while I was watching it like would I would I like this more if it was just traditionally animated instead of layered on top of the the people um, actually performing it and thinking about it I don't know that I would because I think the otherworldly yet also grounded way that that this is doing the animation where it's like you recognize these as actual human movements but they're animated as opposed to like animation which is kind of like where you're doing a a rendition of reality something that works better in the animated form and is 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 alluding to real motion um it's not actual real motion but it it gives you the idea of it this is real motion that is augmented by does that make sense i I don't know if i'm like getting this across clearly i i just i i think like there's there's a a, something in the way that this rotoscoping works where you recognize actual human movement but it's it's unreal it kind of fits the theme of dreaming 
where right. you recognize a person. And I, obviously, like that's that's the goal. But I, I think that like yeah, I, I I see where they're doing that, and I think it makes sense. Where it's like, just like in a dream, I'm recognizing this person, but not, but they somehow feel both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. And I think that works. I don't know if that's what you're saying, Drew, but that, that's kind of how I <laughs> interpreted watching it. Yeah, it's definitely what I'm saying, and I'm I'm thinking of like. Would, like I'm, I'm contrasting what they did with like, would it be better if this movie was like Fantasia with with philosophical discussions, you know? And I think one thing that it sounds like you were getting at, Drew, is like we're used to animation trying to reflect natural movement, but what we're what we were not used to seeing at this point was natural movement being turned into animation. So in some way, it gave a bigger barrier of like bizarreness to everything in this film, to us of being kind of used to the other direction our whole life of animation reflects life. Now we're seeing life morphed into animation. So it's like it's playing, it's messing with our heads and it's super effective for this sort of dreamy environment that, that is trying to be built here. And the other thing I absolutely loved about this technique that you don't get with traditional animation is the quality of the sound. So like the mm. fact that these things are being captured live in these echoey rooms and in these coffee shops and in this bedroom with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and we're hearing the sheets rustle around organically. Like this is not uh, engineered Foley sound. We're hearing natural sounds combined with animation, which is something I was not used to seeing. And it really adds an interesting element of realism that we don't really get in a traditional animation where every sound is either fabricated digitally or recorded outside of the fact and applied. And a lot, I mean, no disrespect to artists who pull that off. They do a great job, but there's really no substitute to the actual sound of the room when something is happening. And it was really cool to get that sort of naturalism in something that looked so bizarre. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting to contrast this with uh, what I brought up before the Zemeckis mocap movies because you watch those movies and the fact that they're trying to replicate you know real real human movement but for some reason because they're going for closer to reality with the digital designs it is so off-putting to your eye that like you can't it it never registers as as anything resembling reality it just creeps you the fuck out whereas this is like doing the opposite of that in some way. I don't know. I, I, I find it really interesting as a technology and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad that more people haven't experimented with it. Like after this link later did uh, a scanner darkly, which I haven't seen. I've seen clips from, and, and I think he does the rotoscoping a little bit better there because in this movie he does. Yeah, it's cleaner. he, he does too much moving of the camera in this movie. And, and honestly, it was a little disorienting at times while I was watching it. And I think like all the movement on screen can, can be a lot. Um, yes, dude, I completely agree. And I, it, it really, it brings us to something I was really excited to talk about. When we started this conversation, Mike mentioned how the first time he saw this was on a laptop. So the first time I saw this with my sister the other night was on, she has a really nice big screen TV. And I was like, whoa, this is a little full on. Like when it's on a big screen, I can't imagine what it was like in a theater. 
but it is kind of inescapable and it is kind of like super disorienting and it's a bit much. Now, I do think where the film ends up going, that's kind of a benefit because it does turn a bit into a nightmare of this inescapable place. So I think it, it's to its strength to a degree. Second time I watched it was before we hopped on today. And I was like, I'm just going to watch it on my laptop and take some notes. And I think it is a much better laptop movie in a, in a strange way where it's like you can kind of, you're a little bit, there's a little bit more of a distance. Your eyes can kind of subconsciously take a break from it and you're not so assaulted. And again, that might be against what the movie is attempting to do, but it is a more pleasurable viewing experience, I think. I think that's interesting. I'm, I'm, if I give this movie a rewatch at some point, it's going to be on a laptop, I think. Yeah, I think there's an element to it, too, where it's like parts of this movie are really slow. And especially if it's a segment you're not into, you still have to sit through that whole segment. So I kind of my, my second time watching it, I was wrapping gifts because it was Christmas Eve. And um, I kind of enjoyed watching it while I had something else to do because you could tune in and out. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely parts where you're just like, I really don't have to hear this guy in the jail cell explain how he's going to kill people again for four straight minutes. Uh, so it was it was kind of nice to be able to zone in and out on it. Definitely. I'm excited to give A Scanner Darkly a watch after this, though, because I, I think it seems maybe more up my alley for for if I'm going to di- digest this as a as an art form um because it's more story driven and and I'd be interested to see what that is and and what that is with really great actors cuz I mean that movie is loaded with actors it's Woody Harrelson uh Robert Downey Jr Keanu Reeves Winona Ryder like it's it's stacked uh just interesting tie in with this movie so in the end uh one of those last scenes he's talking about Philip K Dick uh the author very famous science fiction author um, and the experience he had and how that kind of ties into, I, I guess, Linklater's view on dreaming and life and death and time. Um, I don't know if that's just in the story or if that's how he actually feels, but um, that movie is based on a Philip K. Dick novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of goes back into like how much of a fan Linklater is. Uh, I have seen it. It's, it's pretty good. I'd recommend checking it out. Okay. Definitely actually has a plot unlike this movie. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else we want to touch on before we wrap up here on Waking Life? I really did like the score. Um, I didn't notice until second viewing that we're being introduced to the score in that first scene of the musicians kind of working on it and and working it out. And it really, I think, fits the movie perfectly. I thought it was a very, very well done score. I completely agree. Yeah, I I found the score really fun to listen to. And and I think it perfectly works with everything going on screen. Uh, in terms of the animation style, one thing I really did like about it, this whole Roto thing, is when faces would explode with expression and like wrinkles would pop up when someone was really emphasizing something. I think of that that first college professor who's giving the lecture. He's kind of got like red hair. And I, the first times we saw it, like when he was really being emphatic and the wrinkles would erupt for a moment and then disappear. I'd never really seen that before and I thought that was super cool. Yeah, that, that's the best of the animation is when it's uh, it's being playful like that and it's doing doing interesting stuff. All right, well, I think that's going to do it then on uh, on Waking Life. I think it's if nothing else worth a watch just for the technical aspects, but I think it's really it's a it's an interesting movie. It didn't totally connect with me, but I but I I'm glad to have watched it. 
Yeah, yeah dude. I totally agree. I'm, I'm super glad we got to talk about it. Mike, I'm really glad you were able to join for it. Um, yeah, and shout out to Abby for kind of subtly introducing this movie to me long long time ago. Yeah, and definitely was. I really enjoyed the conversation, and, and overall, I really dug the flick. And more power to Richard Linklater. I'm excited to see what he does next. Do more weird shit, Dick. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys for having me on. It's been it's been really fun, and in a lot of ways, I've been waiting like 15 years to talk about this movie with with somebody because it's so weird. Uh, but it's been fun, and I, I'm looking forward to listening to it. Glad we've uh, gotten that on record for sure. Um, It's time to put something else on the board, though, here. Mike, we threw out at the beginning that you could put something on if you wanted it. Is there something sticking out in your brain that you want to throw on? So I don't know if this is, like, too on the nose, and if it is, uh, you guys can can tell me. I thought uh, Memento would be an interesting one to do. It's, like, one of Christopher Nolan's first movies, very uniquely shot. Um, I think, is it Guy Pierce? Uh, mm-hmm. who stars in it. Um, I've seen it, but it was a while ago. I thought that could be kind of an interesting one. Um, so I'll throw that out. I actually had thought about maybe doing Snatch as well, which, Jared, you mentioned earlier, because I love Brad Pitt. That's an incredible Brad Pitt movie, among other things, and one of the few Guy Ritchie movies that I think actually kind of hits. Um, but, yeah, I guess I'll throw that out there. Feel free to take it or leave it, depending on what you guys want to go with. Jared, did you have an opinion? Well, I, I know, I'm assuming Drew and I, have, we've both seen Memento, right? It's been years for me on Memento, but yeah, I have seen yeah, it. Yeah, I've seen it. It's also been a while. I saw Snatch to death in high school, but Snatch could be an interesting one just to a does-it-hold-up degree. You mm-hmm. know, that could be kind of a new conversation because I watched it like probably 12 times in like a two year span. I was just obsessed with it and I wanted everyone to see it and I like sat people down and like, we have to watch this. And then I pretty much have left it since then because I could just recite it. And I, I'm, I've always been curious and a little nervous about does it hold up? Like if I was to watch it today, would I deeply, deeply enjoy it or would I be rolling my eyes? I don't know. So I'm intrigued by both options. What do you think, Drew? I, I like both options too. I think, I, I like your angle on Snatch probably if I were going to go with one just because I think like that's an interesting conversation, especially considering that Snatch was in a lot of ways riding the success of Tarantino off of Pulp Fiction. And it's interesting to think about like did we love that movie because it was doing a riff on Pulp Fiction or did we love that movie because it was a good movie? Um, and I also, Guy, Guy Ritchie is, he's a unique artist and I, I, I'd be curious to kind of dig into him. So if I had to go one way, I'd say, I'd, I think Snatch would be the one I'd pick. Let's, let's do, let's do Snatch then, man. I, I think that's a good choice, Mike. And I mean, it's been, like I said, over a decade since I've seen it and I do have such a soft spot in my heart for it. And I do think this would be a fun little one-off or maybe we do it again down the line but this little mini category of does it hold up yeah this is a movie that was much did you love it back in the day drew uh you know i re i remember really enjoying it but i think it's literally been since middle school that i've seen this movie okay i, li- I like this then i like this let's do it 
we're putting on Snatch at number 18. So the board now, as it sits, we've got number one, You Can Count On Me, number two, Akiru, number three, The Right Stuff, number four, Rio Bravo, number five, Operation Condor, number six, Anomalisa, number seven, Amadeus, number eight, Pi, number nine, Days of Heaven, number 10, The Limey, number 11, The Hateful Eight, number 12, The Straight Story, number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, number 14, The Karate Kid, number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, number 16, Dirty Harry, number 17, Titan, number 18, Snatch, number 19, Strange Days, and number 20, The Terminator. With that, we'll wrap up here. Thank you so much for for coming on, Mike. It's been a really great time chatting with you. Appreciated your perspective. I think I I needed a third person to bounce off of on this movie because it it took me a little bit to to get into the groove of it. Yeah, thank you guys. I I can't thank you enough for having me on. Had a ton of fun. We'll do this again anytime. Um, And just keep doing what you guys are doing. I love the show. Uh, Cannot say enough how much I enjoy listening to it. So thanks. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. Come back anytime, dude. Jared, you want to throw that dart for us? You got it, man. Let's see what we get. Do you have a dartboard there? Are you going to throw it? No, no, I don't have a dartboard. Oh. I have this like... <laughs> I don't know why I thought you would have a dartboard to throw right now. So, Drew, through the magic of editing, I am back in Atlanta and ready to do the dart throw. Probably miraculously sounding a lot less sick as well. Yes, I think a little bit less sick. It's still there, though. You can tell it's just a day or two later, I think. But, uh, yeah, it's still with me, man. This has been one of the worst colds of my life, I think. Not, like, in terms of just the cough and the length and the the voice effect. It has been brutal, man. Yeah. Well, apologies to listeners in case that uh, is annoying. But, you know, these things happen. This is, uh, this yeah. is podcasting. We do it live. True, true. And it has vastly improved my Funkhauser impression. So that is... <laughs> Thing. All right, anyway. well, you want to go throw that dart for us? Love it, dude. Let's see what we get. The dart has spoken. What's it got for us? Three. Number three is the right stuff. The right stuff. We're going to space. We're going to space. We're going to cover some of my favorite people in human history, actually. One of them, anyway. Chuck Yeager is in this film. There you so, go. Very yeah. excited. I've uh, I've had a Blu-ray of this movie chilling on my shelf for months now, uh, just waiting to hit this one. So I'm pretty stoked about this. That'll uh, be our episode for next week. Do we want to do a quick streaming check on the right stuff? Definitely. It looks like it's just paid to rent. So going to have to pony up a couple of bucks, but... It's a pretty iconic film. It's probably worth it. I, mean, I I saw it once and don't really remember, but I think it's going to be great, and I think it's worthwhile. The Right Stuff will be our episode for next week, but for now, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Late up. Late up.